Welcome to another episode of Nerds Amalgamated. I'm the DJ, and with me today, I have the Professor. Hello. How's it going? It was going great, up until you tried to do your whole greatest showman bit. (laughs) What? I love a good entrance. I like to make an entrance. Calm down, DJ Barnum. (laughs) I I was going like, uh, and, and now we have the flying trapeze. And the person doing the trapeze is the professor. Mate, have you seen me? Do you think I have the athletic ability to do a trapeze? <laughs> well, with the help of with the help of your smarts, you could possibly do it. I mean, yeah, it's possible. <laughs> so I don't think I'd want to do it though. I'll stick to abseiling. <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. Ah, uh, so uh. On to our first topic. We've got a story about industrial waste and their new superpower, petrification. So what? Do you just show it to a basilisk? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I wish uh, I, I wish I can um, do that, but I can't. Although, mind you, this is, that's a very cool superpower, though. Yeah, so how are they petrifying this industrial waste? And are you going to pronounce the names of the places correctly? <laughs> because there's some fun stuff here. So there was a, t- a team of geologists. So Gregory Dipple in 2019 um, hopped on a 119-seat of charter flight to Yellowknife, Canada and flew 280 kilometers to a place called Gakokui Diamond Mine, which is uh, south of the Arctic Circle. Gakokui, which means the place of... The big rabbits. There, uh, I'm sorry. The place of the big rabbits goes to the it's the island of rabbits in Japan. But um, so the mining company over there has spent um as so about- you're saying there can't be two places that have big rabbits. Yeah, <laughs> I could say that. Yeah. Well, it's not like it's called place of the biggest rabbits. <laughs> but have you seen the island of rabbits in Japan though? No, I haven't. Oh, it's it's insane that that place. The, the size of rabbits over there, it's insane. Like, they're, they're huge. Huge. But, uh, so, the, so at Gakakui, Dipple's team has bubbled a mix of CO2 and nitrogen gas, simulating a desert exhaust through a greenish-gray slurry of crushed mine waste and water. Sorry, what kind of exhaust? Crushed mine waste and water. No, what, what exhaust? Simulating sure. diesel, diesel exhaust. Okay. <clears throat> I'm not sure what you said, but... <laughs> It sounded like desert exhaust to my ears. Ah, fair enough. Uh, so over two days, the slurry acquired a rusty, a slight rusty hue, evidence of the iron in, is like was oxidizing, while the manganese and calcium was sucking up CO two and turning into a charcoal, ba- no, not charcoal, carbon-based minerals. The CO two hungry waste from the diamond mine is an exotic deep earth rock shot up from to the surface in the volcanic eruptions that bring up diamonds okay but like diamonds are pretty rare well i mean they're not rare but um digging up uh, up diamonds just to stop co2 uh, emissions sounds a bit <clears throat> well hopefully it would offset the uh, co2 emissions from the mine uh, and they were saying here so known as alkaline um so- Oh, actually, so they said here, by a wide array of rock and mud-like waste from mining and cement and al- aluminium production, coal burning, and other large-scale industrial processes share a similar affinity for, for the greenhouse gas. Known as alkaline solid waste, these materials have a high pH, which causes them to react to CO2, a mild acid. And unlike other schemes for drawing excess CO2 from the atmosphere, these reactive rocks can both capture the gas and store it, locked away permanently in a solid material. That would be like the great irony if um this if coal like coal burning waste was the solution to uh, CO2 emissions. <laughs> presumably, like presumably, you wouldn't be able to capture all the CO2 that it would emit, and you'd need to pump more energy into it probably uh that would just be the great irony if you know you could even get a decent percentage capture that would just be great so we'll blow away the climate change debate by a mile well i'd love that because then it wouldn't be a problem anymore 
<laughs> What's going to be interesting though in this react this would be so would this would would we have instead so would this take away the production of charcoal? Uh, no, I don't think so. Charcoal is a different thing. Charcoal is made by basically taking all the volatiles away from a um, organic matter. So you heat the organic matter, uh, boil off or burn off all of the volatiles, and leave you with basically pure carbon. Hmm. But um, but yeah. Also, yeah. like, would it also t- this? What else would be interesting about this would be this could also. Could this replace nuclear energy as well? Because everyone keeps saying that nuclear is the next thing uh, before, besides um, coal, burning off coal. Like people are saying nuclear might be the next way to go. I don't think so because um, <clears throat> there's a concept peak oil and that would also apply to coal. Basically, there's a point where you can't extract the same amount of uh of oil or coal as you extracted the year before because there just isn't enough of it left. And I think um, even with carbon capture, unless you can convert that carbon back into fuel, uh, you're not going to, you're eventually going to hit peak coal and then we're going to need to move away from coal to say nuclear or solar. But what it could do is um, you could have a massive nuclear plant produce, uh, well, the theory at the moment is that using a massive nu- nuclear plant to produce hydrocarbons would be an environmentally friendly way of getting off uh, fossil fuels for cars. Yeah. So you use the uh, nuclear energy, which is plentiful, to capture CO2 and methane and form it into a hydrocarbon, basically petrol, which you then ship out to the cities and run the vehicles in the city there. Yeah. They're so I don't also- think this will replace nuclear. I think this will supplement it as a way to um, reduce carbon emissions in places where you can't uh, have a, a nuclear plant or a solar plant. See the other pro- see the other interesting thing would be for in with this scenario is storage because storage st- storing like industrial waste is a dangerous thing. Yeah. And the good news is this um, CO2 captured industrial waste is safer. Yeah. Because it, it forms a solid compound rather than a liquid one, which you can then truck around. Uh, you don't need to build a dam, which uh, every few years you hear about a, a dam collapse. And it's often a uh, well, an industrial dam rather than a, <clears throat> a water supply or a flood control dam or a hydro dam. It's a industrial dam storing toxic industrial waste. Yeah. Uh, there's an interesting um, pipe chart in this um, article where it's industrial waste can lock away 310 million tons of carbon dioxide each year. Each category of waste could mineralize and the percentage is shown. So 16.3% is cement waste. Paper industrial waste is 11.4%. Mining waste is 13.5%. Coal combustion is 12.3%. Iron and steel slag, 43.5%, and municipal solid waste is 2.4%. Okay. That is a lot. Uh, I, I was anticipating, like, coal combustion would be more. Yeah, I was too. Yeah. I suppose a lot of the uh, a lot of the coal becomes carbon dioxide and other gases. So the uh, amount of ash you get from burning coal is significantly less than the input. The, other, the one thing that's... Uh, the, there are a couple of hurdles to this, though. Like when I think about it, is the um, like sure we we're putting the industrial waste into uh, turning it into stone, but then um, the problem with elements is that they have a half life, and we don't know what that half life might do to the environment. Actually, it's pretty well known. Uh, the so any half life that this thing would have could be calculated by physicists. And I doubt that it would actually be a particularly dangerous level of radioactivity. So technically, every element is radioactive, but not all of it it is um, radioactive on a scale that is dangerous. Typically, the longer the half-life, the safer you are. Uh, So some uh, nuclear waste from power plants is half-life of a a few decades. Some is half-life of thousands of years. The stuff that has a half-life of a few decades puts out more radiation, but isn't always dangerous. A lot of it is fairly easy to contain. And I don't think um, this will be an issue because 
carbon has a particular fairly long half-life. Yeah. Sure. And, Depending uh, what, on the exact isotope, though. Yeah. They're saying here in this article that well, there are major hurdles, like governments will need to offer incentives for mineralization under massive scale needed to make a dent in the atmospheric carbon, and engineers will need to figure out how to harness the waste while preventing the release of heavy metals and radioactivity locked in the material. Yeah, which I, so which I, um, at scale, you know, coal plants put out more radiation than nuclear plants. Oh. Because of the radioactive isotopes encased in the coal, they burn it and it gets released into the atmosphere. The radioactivity is uncaptured. Unlike with a nuclear plant, a nuclear plant, barring any accident, uh, captures all of its waste. Okay. The crazy part about this is the um, how are they gonna so how are they gonna tax this thing? You know how when a bit. When the climate debate first started, everyone was talking about, okay, we need to do a cl- climate tax and yeah. whatnot. Yeah, so uh, climate taxes are controversial, but the ideal use of a carbon tax is to tax output and use that money to uh, fund capture. So by taxing the output, uh, theoretically, the carbon emitters will reduce their emitting or look into ways to make it cleaner so that they can continue producing their product without releasing as much CO2, then you can use the money to fund the capture to further reduce the impact. So in this case, the idea is usually that you'd have a a carbon credit. So you'd have a credit for your company to release, say, a ton of CO2. And then this company that captures the CO2 could could capture CO2 and sell you credits. So you would have more credits. Mm. Basically, they would create the carbon credits by capturing carbon and locking it up. And then companies would bid for that to be allowed to go and produce. Yeah, they're saying here. Um, so looming just as a ju- just as large a cost is the equation of how it entice companies to build a vast carbon capture industry. The U.S. is offering a tax credit of fifty dollars per ton of CO two that gets stored underground. California's low carbon fuel standard it also rewards companies that sequester carbon. And carbon taxes in places in 29 countries encourage carbon reductions, but none of these incentives rewards mineralization as a, as a way to lower atmospheric carbon. Yeah, so it sounds like it just hasn't been taken into account by uh, legislation. And you just need to make an amendment to say that uh, sequestering a ton of carbon through mineralization is it's still a ton of carbon taken out of the atmosphere. So this mineralization project should get the same uh, same benefits as any other sequest- sequestration product project. Can you imagine like uh, this will be the using rocks and like deep space travel? All right, we're gonna um, throw these rocks into space. Just to get rid of the carbon. Yeah, well, the good news is once it's in these rocks, you don't need to get rid of it. It seems to be fairly stable. The um, I don't think you'd need to actually get rid of it. And it would be bloody expensive. Look, going to space is hard. It costs a lot of money. Even with the new uh, cheap launch options like SpaceX, shipping tons of, uh, tons of carbon waste into a, well... You would need to have an escape vector. So, like, you know, it's actually cheaper to launch a rocket to escape the solar system than it is to fly one into the sun. You know, this uh, th- that just reminds me of Futurama when they um, launched a rocket of garbage into space. Yes, once and for all. <laughs> no, wait, that's the one where they brought the, uh, the iceberg to fix global warming. Yep. <laughs> yeah, so it's hard to get something onto a an escape vector. So there's not really any point to doing it when you can have safe, efficient storage on Earth. Yeah. yeah. And uh, speaking of uh, escape vectors and um, things on Earth, uh, Professor, you've got a story about Team Fortress 2 and how the fighting will never stop. I mean, I'm not seeing how that segue works. (laughs) It was a very, very lame segue. We'll get you there. So Team Fortress 2 has a pretty bad bot problem at the moment, but a group called, uh, I think they called LMAO Box, who are known in the past for creating hacks, have founded the Bot Extermination Service, which is a basically bots who are programmed to detect hackers 
and hunt them down and knock them out. The idea is that these bots will harass them so much and they'll eventually leave. <laughs> so in other words, they're basically uh, robot trolls. Yeah, robot trolls trolling the trolls. <laughs> Which, you know, my job's done. Don't need me anymore. <laughs> I gotta admit, though, this is a it's a it's a nice inset, it's a nice way to try and get rid of the competition at the same time. Yeah. So even if LMAO box are doing this to get rid of the competition, it's um, still a great story. <laughs> but stopping hackers and bots is just an arms race. You'll never completely stop it unless you do something like well, you know, even if you can't even stop hackers on things like Stadia, because one of the uh, common hacks for um, for Overwatch a few years ago well, would detect what's on the screen. It didn't hook into the process. It just used screen capture to recognize, and then would recognize the characters and vector your mouse to them so that you can kill them. So you can't ever really stop hackers. All you can do is fight them, and this is fun. <laughs> And now I want to know what is the uh, the hackers' response? Are they going to go back against the uh, the bot extermination service? <laughs> oh, it's going to be fun. <laughs> yeah. So, how are they going to get around this? I'm interested from a uh, software engineering point of view. At this point, like bots are now like they're like the steroids in the sports industry. You know, like yeah, like. like like um, like this. As soon as the um, the governing body catches up on them, like, oh, you're caught using steroids and stuff, the steroid market just go, ha, we'll we'll upgrade even much more for like ten years above you guys, and you won't find us. Yeah. So, um, and then at what point do humans just completely get out of the system? The bots take over. You know, is it? Are we going to end up with a bot league? Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Instead of having human players, you draw out a bot. To be fair, that's already a thing. But I'd like to see it from, like, you know, from a computer uh, engineering point of view. I'd like to see it become a, a thing. There are already games that do run bot leagues. The other issue being, though, um, even if you manage to catch these bots and lock them down, someone will just make a new one and... Hopefully, your detection methods are um, are valid for it as well. But people are still trying to sneak hacks into proper big league esports. So, you know, can you really stop it? And not to mention, you might even get like in the middle of a match, someone would intrude into the game and and switch the coding as well. Yeah, yeah, you can't ever really stop hackers, so you can just suppress them. But, but from um. But how would you suppress them though? Like, would you would you just jam out the jam, uh, jam out external communications or? Well, no, because these um the big league people are bringing in USB sticks. Hmm. They bring in USB sticks with the bots. And I like how some one of the tweets was saying, um, so this is a bot services extermination bot services. So the terminology sounds really sounds it sounds a little bit iffy. <laughs> well, they only kill the bots, so, you know, first they came for the bots, and I did not speak up for I was not a bot. At what point will one of these um, one of these bots become Skynet? <laughs> oh, yeah. What's, what's going to be also interesting is, what, what if one of the creators of these, of these extermination bots go rogue and they sell that services to the highest bidder? Well, yeah. Um, if LMAO box have got their... Uh, are behind this and they have made the exterminator bots then they are also working around um they're working around the bot detection themselves to create the bot are they then well if valve goes and patches tf2 they could get locked out too which wouldn't be an issue because the uh that would block the bad bots and the good bots yeah if the um, but if the, the guys working on the good bots ever had their code leaked, someone might use it for evil. I like one of their quotes in um, in, in this. Uh, someone claiming to be behind the bot services held an AMA last month, and they said, I get happiness out of shooting bots because guess what? I have nothing better to do. 
I'm not good at the game legitimately, so playing with aim bots is to kill other bots without worrying about being ridiculed or kicked because I'm doing a good thing makes me happy. Yeah, so technically it's like grey hat hacking. Yeah. You're doing it for a good cause, but you're not really doing a good thing. <laughs> oh, everything everyone has a price, I mean. Yeah. Could you see the could you see these guys being hired by um Steam? Uh, no, I I don't think they would. I don't know that Valve has ever been big on hiring hackers. I know uh, Apple has been known to do it a few times. I'm pretty sure one of the main ones that they paid off was uh, George Hotz, GeoHot. I think he got uh, got bought out by Apple. And second, George Bots, you say? Hotz, H-O-T-Z. Oh. oh, yeah, he's known for iOS and uh, reverse engineering PS3 and for... Yeah, here we go. So he, um, he dropped out of the... Uh, iOS hacking scene in 2010, but uh, looks like I'm just following rumors though that he because he dropped out of iOS hacking and about that time he bought a Porsche and the the rumor was that he'd been paid off by Apple. Yeah. So the ideal case here though is that Valve fixes um, TF2 and it's no longer an issue. From a game designer standpoint, do you reckon this is a good measure in game designing or it's just a I think it's an interesting one. I don't know that it's the best way to deal with it. Like, it's the best thing these people have access to. As a game developer, I wouldn't do this because if I have the ability to detect the bots, I would uh, I would just ban them. I wouldn't make a bot to harass them because then I'm wasting slots in my server. If I had a... Uh, yeah, there we go. So that article you just shared is an Apple, Apple hacker who was hired by apple yeah but anyway so these bots are taking up a slot on the server and they they're harassing other bots but if you can block them then you're saving two slots on your server the bot that you block and the bot exterminator so i wouldn't do this as a game developer as a fan who just wants to be able to play the game without being hacked sure go ahead be my (laughs) guest maybe it'll get valve to actually update tf2 Ah, oh, that'll be fun. That'll be fun. Speaking of fun, um, uh, we've got I've got an interesting story. So, um, you ever heard of the musical artist um Akon? Not in a very long time. Well, um, Akon is now going to be uh building a a city based on Wakanda, and it's gonna and he needs and to do this, he's raising six billion dollars. Will he actually do it? <laughs> Is this just a, a con? Like, this could just be a Kickstarter. <laughs> See, that's the thing, though. Like, I, I was I was at two minds about this. Like, one half of me is saying he's, he's either doing this as a publicity stunt, but on the other hand, I'm going, um, yeah, maybe he might be doing it as a worthy cause. I mean, in the last few years, he's been doing some interesting projects, like... Um, he what was a, a while ago. He was talking about um. He, uh, he gifted two thousand land, two thousand acres of land. Oh, not not two thousand acres of land. He um did some stuff about power, like helping um by putting solar energy into it as well. Okay. Yeah, there we go. So uh, in twenty fourteen, he started uh, Acon Lightning Africa, which is um putting solar energy projects into rural areas and um another and another place he uh, he. In an, and so for this project, by the way, the Wakanda project, he developed his own currency called A-Coin. Yeah, that's kind of tipping it towards a scam for me. <laughs> like, he's done good stuff in the past, but um, why does he feel the need to create his own currency? Oh, so is A-Coin um, a, a cryptocurrency? Yeah, it is. There we go. I'm done. <laughs> it's a scam. It's a scam. <laughs> Yeah, it's a. Uh, I I don't see why he needs to make a cryptocurrency. If he's building a city in Senegal, why does he need a um? Why does he need a cryptocurrency? Why not just use Senegalese currency? I think it's I think it's the easy transferable thing. Um, I'm I'm assuming, but yeah, I wonder if he's uh got permission from the Senegalese government. Oh yeah, yeah, he actually has um. The in the website, it's been it says that Akon's been gifted in inverted commas two thousand acres of land by the president of Senegal to 
to build the city, which is named after himself, known as Akon City. Okay. And uh, oh, and this is what the website also says. So the website says this: the developed economy aims to adapt future development. The current evolution required a flexible infrastructure to accommodate new real estate development, fast pace of global changes, economic project, poverty and technology race, continuously causing Senegal to face various challenges. Acon City will play a vital role in the quest for solutions to these challenges. The knowledge we generate and the professionals we train are expected and quite high, and quite rightly to help the providing local solutions as well as a critical component of human development. Okay, and- I'm not a big fan of his website. It takes forever <laughs> to load. <laughs> and and so it feels like a publicity stump because I've looked it up and Senegal is, in 2019, uh, has a human development index of... Uh, Sorry, where was it? 166 out of 189. It gets even better. So it is, uh, it is the professional inv- individuals who develop the capacity and analytical skills that drive local economies, create new industries, support civil so- society. This is like a politician speech, man. It is. Lead capable oh government. Oh, my God. Acorn's gone Kanye. <laughs> and uh, it's funny. He says that he hopes this project will provide much-needed jobs for Senegalese and also serve as a home back home for Af- black Americans and others facing racial injustices. Look, it's all very noble. I'm not sure I believe it, though. And here's the thing, though. Like, if you... Like, what like he's saying it's based off Wakanda, okay? It, which is based off the Marvel comics of um Black Panther. Like in Wakanda, okay, it's a highly developed country. Uh Wakanda is the most technologically advanced nation on the planet. Um Wakanda is based on a pseudo-tribal society, as in the head of the state is Black Panther. In the title in in the title role, he's the king slash chieftain, religious leader, and commander in chief. And the title is hereditary and can be challenged by any citizen to a right to a ceremonial combat. And it's also ruled by a council of tribal elders. And uh, they they gather they, they gather to advise the Black Panther on the future of the nation. And following a governmental reformation, the Wakandan Constitutional Council transitions to the country from an absolute monarchy to a constitutional monarchy. So is though is Akon forming his own council? Like who is know. going to lead this city? That's the thing. Like, and there's also, and here's the other interesting part: it's eighteen united tribes in in one city in Wakanda. Yeah. Okay. So I mean, that's all fiction, though. Like, yeah, it's all. They've fiction. got a yeah, they've yeah. got a uh, a place, Senegal. So yeah. <laughs> most of the people who live in uh, Akon Wakanda. Yes, Wakanda. That's what we're calling it now. (laughs) Wakanda. So um, most of the people there are probably going to be Senegalese. That's the thing. That's going to be. Well, what I'm worried about though is how well do most high tech super cities founded in countries that aren't doing great on their human development index end up? Oh, that's Pyongyang. (laughs) Oh. That's the uh, other- Brasilia. <laughs> the thing is, it's very hard to build a city and have people go there and have it become a functioning city. And what's going to be even you're a dictator? Yeah, and even what's going to be even worse is though, Wakanda is a hidden city, like no, it hides from the world. How are you going to make it hidden? Yeah. Like, are they going to make it like an authoritarian regime, like like China, I, where like I doubt they're actually going to hide it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, unless they do like what China did. I think it just did. means that it's going to be a big, high-tech African city. So I think you're digging into the uh, the Wakanda bit a bit too much. Yeah, uh, possibly. Yeah, yeah. But um, they, he reckons that they'll have office towers to accommodate most international tech giants. How are they going to get them to move there? Why are they going to go to Wakanda instead of Silicon Valley? <laughs> Unless if the tax market is pretty cheap over there, but yeah. So you know, how do you how do you get all the big companies to move to Wakanda? Oh, that's that's that that you have to like you would have to entice Google and Microsoft and all those kind all those places to 
like say like hey this is a good place to work in we are we're like california but without the uh homeless crisis that's going on okay but you're still surrounded by africa like not to say anything against like not that i have anything against africa but African countries aren't known for being the most politically stable. And yes, a lot of that's because they got screwed over by colonists. But can they, um, can you build a tech city in Senegal and not have bad people try to take it over, warlords and all of that? Mm. You probably could, but is it going to end up like Dubai, where you've got this massive uh, tech? technocratic city and then all these slums around it yeah that's gonna be oh, that's gonna suck like here here's so Acon's basically saying the project has secured one third of it but declined to publicly identify as investors signing non-disclosure agreements after construction begins in early 2021 the first project alone could make it more than three years he said uh, so the almost surrealist water-like designs of Acon City were inspired by traditional sculptures long made in African villages. However, the structures in Acon City will be made from metal and glass. Yeah, I really don't think they're going to keep this uh, sci-fi design. Why do I get that, that looks feeling? Like this some is... final year architecture students <laughs> project. Mm-hmm. Oh, and uh, he's saying here, Acon City is promised to is promising. A bit of everything, a seaside re- resort, a tech hub, recording studios, and even a zone called Sennywood, where developers hope to help develop Senegal's film industry. Yeah, and well, he reckons in the educational district, they're going to have uh, buildings to accommodate MIT, Berkeley, Harvard, and Stanford. Why are they just American universities? Why are MIT and Berkeley going to go there? Why not Oxford? I think, like, uh, like, like he said, it doesn't make like, a lot of sense to me. Yeah, like he said, he's trying to. He's, he's based, like, a, like I said earlier on, he's trying to make it a home back home for Black Americans and others facing racial injustices. Yeah. So, how are the Black Americans going to afford to move to Senegal? So that's the other issue. Yeah. Like, if he wants to make a city for the Black diaspora, cool. How are they going to get there? Like, Israel has a birthright where they will help fund trips for young adults who live outside Israel to go on a holiday to Israel and, you know, experience the homeland. Yeah. So I, you know, this all feels very, um, I don't know. I don't think it's very realistic. I would like to see it succeed because it's a really cool project, but I think there's a lot of issues and I don't know that Akon has the uh, political ability to handle that. Because he's can, a musician, not a politician. Can Just you imagine like Kanye? A- he probably shouldn't be president. <laughs> can you imagine Akon going, "I am the now, I am now the Black Panther." <laughs> <What>? <laughs> and you're like, "What?" Ah, <laughs> uh, that's gonna be. Uh, there's a lot of questions to this, but I'm just going like it could either be a publicity stunt or it could be an actual thing. I mean, he's got a lot of funding. Like six billion dollars is no joke, and a third of it. Yeah. And, you know, it's great that he's investing in in Senegal, hopefully, and it's not a con. But I, yeah. There are, there are a lot of questions. There are too many questions. Yeah, there's a lot of questions, you know. Political will, the ability to actually construct a, um, a technocratic city in Senegal uh, that isn't going to flop like almost every other manufactured city. Uh, that isn't going to excarberate the um, the the class gap in Senegal. What's going to be interesting is what narrative is a is Acon going to use to lure in the people? Like he's using uh, he's using the the narrative of racial injustice in around the world. I mean, sure, in this current climate, we are seeing like levels of injustice to a uh, God knows how God knows. Well, the question is going to be, how long is that narrative going to last, though? Long enough. And what's going to be yeah. interesting is, I'm going to especially uh, in America. Oh yeah. What's going to be other? What? What the other interesting thing is, will we uh, like? Let's say, for example, Acon become um, it's it chooses a successor. Like, at what point is his successor going to go? Okay, we're going to invade another country. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to invade another country. Are they going to? Please don't turn the uh, the, techno- 
the technocracy into a uh, into a. <laughs> I'm just imagining Bill Gates going all like Fury Road. <laughs> Actually, no, that would be uh, Steve Jobs. Oh. Steve Jobs would be the one into all of the shiny and chrome. <laughs> but can you imagine Bill Gates with with all like with Silicon Valley at the back with the with behind his back going like. All right, we're gonna invade. We're gonna invade DC and turn it into a dictatorship, like one billionaire to another billionaire. <laughs> I mean, it'd be a good, it'd be a great, it'd be great though, like getting Bill Gates to rule America. But <laughs> I really don't think it would. I don't think billionaires have much in common with the uh, sort of people they'd be ruling. Ah, uh, uh, but um, yeah. So uh, we should. I think we should move on with it in the interest. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN time uh, so professor what game have you been playing i've been playing uh well tons more fall guys <laughs> but i did also check out Spellbreak. oh yeah Spellbreak is a um it's a, a magic based battle royale Ooh. so you, you start with one particular power say lightning or frost or fire and you can find other powers to supplement yourself around the map so you can then have two powers, say, um, fire and lightning. And when you use one power and then use another, they can combine into all sorts of fun effects. Nice. You, have you yeah. tried any, um, Professor? Uh, I don't often get... Um, I've only played a few rounds, but I don't often get a, uh, a good shot with um, where I can... You know, the enemy sits still long enough to use both powers. One I saw was casting a... A toxic cloud using the toxic power, then setting it on fire and causing an explosion, which I have used. Very effective. Guy was hiding in a house. I uh, popped the toxic cloud in there, popped the fireball in there. He came running out screaming on fire. <laughs> uh, so have you encountered any big flaws in that, in this game? Uh, yeah. It's, um, there's not a whole lot of variety in, um, in the loot. So traditionally, battle royale games are about a lot of loot looting, and I don't think there's um, enough variety in loot. So what? Um, so how, so do you? Is it team based or is it solo um, battle royale? Uh, no, it's team based. So trios. So um, yeah, I've been playing. Um, I've been playing with uh, random people. So uh, how many would? How many learning beanies would you give this one out of? I'll give it a three out of five. It's it's fun to play occasionally. Um, I don't think I'll sink any significant amount of time into it. Uh, I yeah, so I don't think I'll go back to it too much. It could be fun in the right hands. Uh, yeah, it's not for me. I think. Okay. Okay. And uh, as for me, I have not been playing anything. Shun. <laughs> no. My credibility ruined. <laughs> you didn't have had any credibility to begin with. I did. <laughs> I did have credibility, but um, yeah, I, I, it's just been crazy with all the work, with with stuff going on. But uh, yeah, I'll think of something. Uh, so moving to our shoutouts on the fifth of September, twenty twenty, Batman the animated series celebrates its twenty eighth birthday. So, uh, 28 years ago, Batman the Animated Series first premiered on television, featuring the voices of Kevin Conroy as Batman, Mark Hamill as the Joker, and a dozen others who would um, go on to become a fan favorite of many. Uh, in total, the series ran for 85 episodes and featured characters like Robin, uh, Dick Grayson Robin, uh, Batgirl, Alfred Pennyworth, Jim Gordon, Harvey Bullock, Lucius Fox, Jonah Hex, Santana, uh, Two-Face, Penguin, Catwoman, Riddler, Poison Ivy, Scarecrow, Clayface, and the entire roster of Batman's Rogues Gallery. And since we're talking Batman animated series, I'm going to have to link the um, the short that they did where Mark Hamill plays every character. <laughs> oh, I've seen that one. 
Yeah, oh, so it's so good. Might have mentioned it on the show before. Yeah. Oh, that was funny. <laughs> Do you never see, you've seen those series, haven't you? Though. Uh, no, I've never really been a big Batman fan. Oh come on! It's Mark Hamill. It's Mark Hamill. <laughs> Mark Hamill's a Joker. So? That, was, that was the one thing, like after up uh, besides Luke Skywalker, that he'll be remembered for. Okay, and and uh, he does a good Joker. I'll give you that. Yeah, I'm sure he's good, but I've never felt the need to watch it. Fair enough. On the uh, 6th of September 2020, Star Trek are now releasing Klingon Blood Wine. So, uh, so it's a year after the launch of Star Trek Wines, the company behind its creation have expanded the re- range with Klingon Blood Wine, Cabernet Sauvignon, and the first white wine in, in, the, in the lineup. Announces Cabernet. Pres- Cabernet. So, thank you. Cabernet. <laughs> <laughs> Cabernet Sauvignon. Oh, I thought it was Sauvignon. Okay, Sauvignon. I think it's that anyway. Yeah. So uh, announced in the press release in both English and Klingon. <laughs> People legitimately speak Klingon. Can you imagine fact, being the... the linguist who ranged their child speaking only Klingon? Can you imagine being the press person and you got and you and you like accidentally got the Klingon only and you're like, I can't read this. <laughs> So um, the new bottle in the wine range inspired by the Star Trek TV series is the Klingon Blood Wine 2018. It'll be packaged in a wax di- it's packaged in a wax dipped bottle. It's made from Cabernet Sauvignon and produced by E2 Family Winery in Lodi, California. And for added authenticity, the created co- creators consulted members from the KAG, which is the Klingon Assault Group and KLI, Klingon Language Institute which created the packaging and related brand material. It'll be, it's priced at $50 per bottle, and um, it'll be shipping. It, it will um, be available for shipping on the 17th of September, which is the Klingon Day of Honor. And as an Easter egg for fans, the blood wine will feature four separate unique corks with Klingon proverbs. It's like, for, it's, it's like, it's like watching a special fortune cookie. <laughs> Can you imagine just like opening up a blood, opening up a, a blood wine bottle and you're like, today you will die a great death. Well, that was Klingon. Cool. Go ahead. <laughs> On the uh, set, would, would you try it though? If it came across my table, I would. I wouldn't go out and buy it. Not a big <laughs> wine drinker, but you know. $50 a bottle though, like you in US. Yeah. It's up there. Like you can usually get some pretty decent cheap wine in Australia. So you know, fifty bucks a bottle is pretty up there. So uh, on the seventh of September, twenty twenty, um, white southern right uh, whale calves were spotted, su- reportedly sighted off um, WA's co- west um, south coast. So scientists on the hunt for the white whale calf of WA South Coast believe they may may have found not one but two examples of rare mammals. So on Saturday, a white calf was reportedly spotted by whale watchers in Cheney's Beach, about 70 kilometers east of Albany. And on the same day, UWA researchers uh, saw another white, white whale calf in King George Sound, suggesting that there are at least two of the rare mammals. So the calves were actually juvenile su- southern right whales that are white in color. The phenomenon is known as gray morphism and is thought to affect just 5% of calves. Most turn dark by time they become adults. Despite the quiet season, a study by Curtin University has revealed that the, slowly, the species is slowly spouting back after being hunted to the brink of extinction until the 1970s. Yeah, so the, um, the right whale was called that because it was so good for hunting. Huh. So uh, on to our remembrances. On the uh, 7th of September, 1601, John Shakespeare, uh, an English businessman in Stratford-upon-Avon and the father of William Shakespeare. He was a glover, a, a wit-star uh, by trade. He uh, was elected to several muni- municipal offices, serving as an alderman and culminating in, term, in, in the terms of, uh, of a bailiff the chief magistrate of the town council and mayor of Stratford in 1568 before he fell on hard times for unknown reasons. His fortunes were le- were uh, later revived as he was granted a coat of arms fi- five years before his death, probably at the instigation and the expense of his son, the actor and playwright. He died at the age of 70 in Stratford-upon-Avon. Um, oh, and an interesting fact, he also worked as, an, um, as a taster as well. 
As in the person who would test to make sure the king's meal wasn't poisoned? I think so. I think so. Like, you'd want it to be a, a pretty quick-acting poison. <laughs> because, you know, you wouldn't want to sit around waiting for your meal to get cold. Yeah. Oh, here we go. So it's in 1556, so Shakespeare was elected borough ale tester, the first of several key municipal positions he would hold in Stratford. In that position, he was responsible for ensuring that weights and measures and prices were observed by innkeepers and publicans through within the borough and also by butchers, bakers and town traders. Okay, so it sounds like, um, you know, ale taster makes it sound like you get to enjoy drinking beer all the time. If you That'd enjoy be a great beer. Job. <laughs> well, not for me. I don't like the taste of beer. But instead, you have to go around making sure they're using the correct measures. It's just another example of a, a job with a great title ruined by the actual job. <laughs> but can you imagine the, the, the results, though? You get, like, free bread. Like, can you imagine, like, bre- sa- give us bread samples and wine samples and meat samples? You're like, wow, oh, cool. Does he get free samples? I think so. Here we go. I guess he'd have a um, probably a per diem from his uh, well, from his office. Maybe he'd have to. Um, yeah, maybe he'd have to. You know, plan ahead and go and buy from a different shop every day. Yeah, yeah. Ah, but I, I still they think did that. get to taste it though. But <laughs> yeah, you know, the rest of the job is more boring. Hmm, that's true. On the seventh uh, of September. Um, 1991, Edwin McMillan, Edwin Madison Mil- McMillan, American physicist and Nobel laureate, credited with being the first ever to produce transuranium element neptunium. For this, he shared the ki- Nobel Prize in Chemistry with Glenn Seaborg in 1951. In uh, in um, it, he he did this in, uh, as a graduate of California Institute of Technology, where he earned his deck doctorate from Princeton University um, and joined Berkeley Radiation Laboratory where he discovered oxygen 15 and beryllium 10. And during World War II, he worked at, on microwave radar at the MIT Radiation Industry and on sonar at the Navy Rec- Radio and Sound Laboratory. Uh, he led teams working on gun-type nuclear weapon design and participated in development on implosion-type w- nuclear weapon. He also included. He, he was also the co-inventor of the synchrotron with Vladimir Veskala. In uh, 1964, Macmillan received the Golden Plate Award on of the American Academy of Achievement. He died from contra- complications from diabetes at the age of 83 in El Cerrito, California. Uh, a gun-type nuclear weapon that would have been awesome. Well, you know, you're conflating a few different topics there. So a gun-type nuclear weapon isn't like point and shoot. It refers to the mechanism by which the nuclear weapon works. So a gun-type nuclear weapon works by firing a chunk of uranium down a tube. Ah. Yeah. Now, the uh, the US did work on um, what more like what you're thinking of, more like nuclear mortars, but they've been basically discontinued. They, they had names like Davy Crockett. But uh, the part of the issue is that the last radius was a significant fraction of the effective range. So sure, you could do it, but... <laughs> Be aware of the damage you're going to pose. Yeah. Yeah, it's still pretty close to where you are. Ah, uh, man. On the seventh uh, of September, twenty ten, uh, Barbara Holland, American author who wrote in defense of such modern day vices as cursing, drinking, eating fatty foods, and smoking cigarettes, as well as a memoir of her time spending growing up in Chevy Chase, uh, Maryland, near Washington D.C. I can't believe there is actually a place called Chevy Chase. What did you think it was? Like living uh, living with Chevy Chase. <laughs> <laughs> I grew up in Chevy Chase's house, and it was a great time. So, uh, so in a so in a um, reposte in uh, to Virginia Woolf's 1929 essay, "A Room for One One's Own," um, in which Woolf states that a woman must have money and a room of her own if she's to write fiction. Holland wrote, "No, Mrs. Woolf, she must have a job, Mrs. Woolf." <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, <burn. laughs> 
turning to essays, Holland published three collections, Endangered Pleasures in Defense of Naps, Bacons, Martinis, Profanity, and Other Indulgences, Bingo Night at the Fire Hall, The Case of Cows, Orchids, Bake Sales, and Fairs, and Wasn't the Grass Greener, A Curmudgeon's Fond Memories. That's a great titles. <laughs> yeah. Um, endangered pleasures include some of her essays supporting habits such as drinking and smoking. Holland lamented the increasing social unacceptability of common vices, saying, we have let the new Puritans take over, spreading a layer of foreboding a- across the land and denying ourselves even the most harmless delights, marks a suitability somber outlook on life. Well, uh, I bet she must be, I bet she must be like going, ha, I was right, I told you. I was right. In uh, 2007, the Washington Post um, published the profile of Holland after the release of a 16th book, The Joy of Drinking, where she wrote a protest to the rise of broccoli, exercise, and Starbucks. (laughs) (laughs) During the interview, she poured herself a glass of wine and lit a cigarette, pointing to each and saying, uh, stuck up here in on this mountain, I have only two hobbies. And she said that and said that she's been drinking half a gallon of scotch a week. <laughs> I would not want to be her liver. <laughs> I would not want to be her body. <laughs> Period. I mean, damn. It is funny, though, how, you know, some people can smoke one cigarette and die of lung cancer, but people like her can just go nuts for their entire <laughs> lives. How did she... How, there must be something... There must be something in the water, man. <laughs> like Genetics, <laughs> maybe. Oh, man. Like, she died from lung cancer at the age of 77 in Blue Mountain, Virginia. But, god damn, like, two gallons... Half a gallon of scotch a week. Man, the hangover. Well, <laughs> technically, you never have a hangover if you never stop drinking. Oh, man. <laughs> <sighs> I'll bet you, though, whoever whoever she bought the scotch from must be really rich as well. <laughs> like, if I recall, like, Kim Jong-il, uh, Kim Jong-il like, he he was the biggest uh, exp- um, spender for cognac, if I recall. Okay. Probably uh, bought the most cognac of anyone in, in North Korea. Yeah, uh, that, that's what I've heard, so. Uh, so, on to our famous birthdays. On the 7th of September, 1707, Georges-Louis Le... Leclerc, uh, Comte de Buffon, a French naturalist, mathematician, cosmologist, and encyclopedist. Uh, His works influenced the next two generations of naturalists, including Jean-Baptiste Lamarck and Georges Cuvier. Buffon published 36 quarter volumes of his Histoire Naturale during his lifetimes, with additional volumes based on his notes further research being published in the two decades following his death. Um, his he first his first mark in in the mark of was his mark in mathematics in his Sir Le Jeu de Franc de Carrière, which is a, in English is on the game of fair fair square introduced differential and integral calculus into probability theory. The problem of Buffon's needle in probability theory is named after him. Buffon's Histoire Naturelle Générale et Particulière was originally intended to cover all three kingdoms of nature, but the Histoire Naturale ended up being limited to animal and mineral kingdoms, and animals covered were only birds and uh, quadrupeds. And he also introduced a a thing called Buffon's Law, which is uh, that despite similar environments, different regions have distinct plants and animals. So this was known. This was the first principle of biogeography, and on the basis he sometimes considered a transformist and a precursor of Darwin. He also asserted that climate change may have facilitated the worldwide spread of species from their centers of origin. He is considered the similar. Buffon considered the similarities between humans and apes, but ultimately rejected the possibility of a common descent. He was born in Montbard, Burgundy. I like how he he, he even um, used climate. Ch- he even predicted climate change. Well, it's not hard to predict. The um, the bit about climate change that people think about these days is human caused climate change. But the climate's changed for forever. The issue is we're now messing it up. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. So on to on the seventh of September, nineteen o three. 
Margaret Langdon, uh, American writer best remembered for Anna and the King of Siam, her best-selling 1944 novel of her life uh, of the life of Anna Leah Lowens, which eventually sold over a million copies and was translated into more than 20 languages. In 1950, Landon sold the musical playwrights to Richard Rogers and Oscar Hammerstein II, who created the musical The King and I from her book. In uh, 1972, 20th Century Fox produced a non-musical television sitcom of the CBS based on The King and I called Anna and the King, with Samantha Egger taking the part of Anna Lee Lowens and Neil Brenner reprising his role as a king. The series was unsuccessful and cancelled after 13 episodes. Landon charged the producers with inaccurate and mutilated um, portrayals of a literary property and sued for copyright infringement. The suit initially failed in the late 1974, but reached after the judgment was appealed and the parties chose to settle out of court. And the settlement was reached in 1975, in which Landon was satisfied. She was born in Somers, Wisconsin. That was a great um, musical, by the way. Yeah, never seen it, that one, actually. Oh, dude. Dude. The, um, have you ever seen the, uh, the, the one that came out in around the 2000s or 1990s? No, I don't think so. Uh, that, one, that one was really dark as well and sad as well. On uh, 7th of September 1914, James Van Allen, James Alfred Van Allen, um, oh, Van Allen, not Van Allen. <laughs> <laughs> Very different things there, DJ. <laughs> American scientist at the University of Iowa, he was instrumental in establishing the field of magnetospheric research in space. The Van Allen radiation belts were named after him following his discovery using Geiger-Muller tube instruments on the 1958 satellites Explorer 1, Explorer 3, and Pioneer 3 using the International Geophysical Year. Van Allen um, led the scientific community in putting scientific research instruments on space satellites. So uh, Van Allen uh, was the first to devise a bo- balloon rocket combination that lifted rockets onto balloons high above uh, most of Earth's atmosphere before firing them even higher. The rockets were ignited after the balloons reached an altitude of 16 kilometers. As a Time magazine later reported, Van Allen's rocket could not be fired in Iowa for fear that spent rockets would strike an Iowan or his house. (laughs) (laughs) Oh dear. Imagine the government being afraid of you because of that. Yeah. Uh, that so he so he's released a couple of uh, rockets, and um, there was one time. So on the theory that extreme cold at high altitude might not might stop the clockwork um, supposed to ignite the rockets, Van Allen heated cans of orange juice, snuggled the um, snuggled them onto the third rac- uh, raccoons. Gondola and wrapped them, wrapped the whole business in insulation. The rocket fired. <laughs> that was a gr- that must have been a great life hack. <laughs> yes, and so, then you know the next morning at breakfast, the chef's just like, "Hey, James, have you seen my orange juice?" <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> imagine telling, and they'd be like, "Uh, no, <laughs> wasn't me." <laughs> So uh, the Van Allen belts um, are named after Van Allen, their uh, discoverer. In nineteen in, in May fourth, nineteen fifty nine, issue of Time magazine credits uh, James Van Allen as the man responsible for giving U.S. a big lead in scientific achievement. They called Van Allen a key figure in the Cold War's com- competition for prestige. Today he could he can tip back his head and look back look at the sky beyond its outmost blue at. Are the world encompassing belts of fierce radi- radiation that bear his name? No human name has ever been given to a more majestic creature of the planet Earth. Van Allen was the principal investigator for scientific invest- um, investigations on 24 Earth satellites and planetary missions. He was born on. He was born in Mount Pleasant, Iowa. <laughs> Even the names of those places, like, yep. Ah. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Um, On to our events of interest. On the 7th of September, 1776, according to American colonial report, Ezra Lee makes the world's first submarine attack in the turtle, attempting to attach a time bomb to the hull of HMAS England in New York Harbor, while no British records of this attack exist. Yeah, there are a few of them, like the um, the HMS Hunley, which uh, 
saying three times, killing its crew every time. Huh. So on the on the, September seventh, seventeen seventy six, during the Revolutionary War, the American submersible craft uh, turtle attempts to attach a time bomb. It was the first submarine uh, in warfare. David Bushnell, an American inventor, began building underwater mines while a student at Yale University. So he attached the time bomb. He could <coughs> he could see the the British um, on the deck above, but they failed to notice the strange craft below the surface. So he so Lee secured the bomb um, when his boring tools fell, failed to penetrate a layer of iron sheathing. He retreated and the bomb exploded nearby, causing no harm to the eagle or turtle. <laughs> oh. Damn, he screwed that up. Yep. Despite their failures of the turtle, George Washington gave Bushnell a commission as an army engineer and the drifting mines he constructed de- destroyed the British frigate Cerberus and wrecked havoc against two other British ships. After the war, he became commander of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers stationed at West Point. So you could say he he, he nearly started becoming the first suicide bomber. Yeah, I mean, I don't think he intended to die. <laughs> well, accidental suicide bomber. Yeah, he could very well have been. Uh, Actually, no, the- suicide bombers have been a thing for a long time. Yeah, yeah. On the seventh uh, of September, eighteen seventy-six, in Northfield, Minnesota, Jesse James and the Jess- James Younger gang attempt to rob the town's bank, but are driven off by armed armed citizens. So, attempting a bold daylight robbery in Northfield, Minnesota, bank, the James Younger gang suddenly first uh, finds itself surrounded by angry townspeople and is nearly wiped out. The bandits began with a diversion. Five men, five of the men galloped towards the center of town, hollering and shooting their pistols in the air. As the townspeople ran for cover, three of the men, um, wearing wide-brimmed hats and long dusters, took advantage of the distraction to walk unnoticed to the First National Bank, brandishing pistols. One of the men ordered the bank cashier to open up the bank safe. Though the cashier recognized the famous face of Jesse James, uh, he stalled, claiming that the safe had a time lock and could not be opened. As Jesse James considered this next move, a brave or foolish bank teller made a break toward the back door. While the robbers fired twice, his hitting the um, teller in the shoulder, but the man managed to stumble up to safely and sound the alarm. The citizens of Northfield ran to surround the bank and mercilessly shoot down the robbers as they uh, as they tried to escape. A medical student shot would killed one of the gang members while the owner of the Northfield hardware store mortally, was mortally, wound, uh, no, mortally wounded Bill Chadwell, pep- peppering his body with bullets from a rapid-firing Remington repeater rifle. Uh, Jesse was the last one out of the bank. After pausing briefly to shoot the uncooperative cashier in the head, uh, Jesse left left on left onto his horse and joined the rest of the survivors as they desperately fled town. Can you imagine, like, uh, after that robbery, they go, okay, fellas, I know we've, we've lost a couple of people, but we went out on top. Yeah, I feel like after that much of a stuff up, um, you know, you'd start rethinking your, your life choices. <laughs> Can you imagine the night before the robbery? They're like, okay, uh, so who wants to go to the bank and who wants to be the guys do the distraction? So uh, on the 7th of September, 1936, the last thylacine, a carnivorous marsupial named Benjamin, dies alone in its cage at the Hobart Zoo in Tasmania. On the 7th of September, 1936, only two months after the species was granted protected status, Benjamin, the last known thylacine, died from exposure at the Balmaris Zoo in Hobart. While it's estimated there were around 5,000 thylacines in Tasmania at the the time of European settlement. However, excessive hunting combined with factors such as habitat destruction and introduced disease led to the rapid extinction of the species. The species was granted protection status just 59 days before the death of Benjamin, the last known thylacine, which died in the zoo. Further efforts to capture species for zoos and museums were unsuccessful and none were ever found. Today, controversy surrounds the thylacine and its potential as a candidate for de-extinction. Various scientists have undertaken research in decloning the Tasmanian tiger and bringing the species back from the dead. Many arguments surround this process, but the reality of producing a healthy thylacine from available DNA samples remain extremely expensive and complex. 
Yeah, though there's fairies that they are still alive in the deep bush. Yeah, but has anyone? It's act- been a long time. So. Yeah, <laughs> that's the thing, though. Like, uh, it's such a it's it's a lot of people have claimed like, oh, I saw the thylacine, but the, in the end, like, nah, it's it's fake, man. Yeah. But yeah, um, anything else before we uh, wrap up? No, I think that's all we have for this week. Yeah, um, yeah, uh, that's all we have for this week. Uh, you can you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Uh, we even have a Gmail address if you want if you want to tell us anything. Um, you can also find us on Pod Hero. Yeah, so Pod Hero, you can support us for five dollars a month with your subscription being split between the podcasts that you listen to. So if you only listen to us, we get the full five dollars. If you listen to some of the other uh, that's not canon podcasts, then it gets equally split, or possibly split based on which one you listen to most. I'm not sure. Um, you can also find us on that's not canon.com where we have an archive of our old episodes and also you can also uh, oh and also you can find a new new podcast such as the new one history does you and it's basically a podcast that explores the idea that history always is relevant today and they cover topics in current events foreign policy and international relations so uh that's all we have for today uh stay hydrated take care of yourselves and uh we'll see you next time Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.